Welcome to the DWG Podcast. My name's Ben Brace. And I'm Ed Flaxman, and this is your melting pot of landscape conversations. Hi, welcome, 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 everyone. Episode two, I believe, Ed, is that right? That's correct, Ben. Yes, it is. <laughs> a little uh, little thank you to uh, Carwin Thomas from the Twitter sphere, giving us a long list of possible topics. I think that's really, really cool. I mean, things like economics, health, plant tips, problems in the industry, things like that. I think it's great. Such good um, topics to consider for future episodes. Uh, really, really great to have these suggestions please add more if you feel like you have a burning desire for something to be discussed <laughs> so we, we're, we're talking about kind of rewilding I guess by design it's an it's kind of a little bit out of my comfort zone you know I'm not an ecologist but I certainly have a an idea as to you know where ecology and landscape meet um, not necessarily, you know, a, a neat, a neat junction, but um, uh, a definite overlaps as always in landscape. Yeah, and I think it's that almost that the idea, of the, the contradiction in terms, you know, the idea of ecology or or rewilding, and then you know, design, which effectively goes against that that idea in a, in you know in, in its in its language, I suppose, but actually in industry it's it's where we find real catalyst catalyst for change yeah yeah definitely so yeah anyway um i hope you enjoyed the next step this episode um and we'll catch up with you after for a bit of housekeeping as always (laughs) (laughs) cheers guys enjoy so, I mean, we, we, we've been speaking about rewilding and things like that. We spoke about that um, UN report that was uh, released a couple of months ago now. That was a real beginning point, I think, of this discussion between us. Like that unprecedented decline of species is just, oh, just oh, sends shivers down my spine, you know, and kind of really, really brings it brings it into sharp focus this kind of real pressing need for landscape i mean i see it definitely as a landscape problem Mm. an issue for us to kind of address this this problem because you know let's let's not beat around the bush you know landscape is about um facilitating development uh appropriately be it a housing development or yeah, HS2, for instance, I see it very much at the forefront of this, you know, addressing this, this whole damage that we're, that we're currently doing to the environment. Oh, it's, it was, it's a real wake up call. And I, although I say it's a wake up call, we've known about it for a long yeah. time. And yeah. it's funny because this, you know, that even this report is now, what is it, a month old, nearly two months old. Yeah. And you you kind of would have expected in the media that suddenly it was like okay this is the the keystone bit of information that's really going to change policy it's going to change the way how everyone works it's going to change almost like everyone just drops everything yeah quits their jobs and changes their lives because this is kind of okay we've drawn a big red line under it now there's no excuse yeah Uh, and I suppose then that evokes discussion between ourselves thinking actually and I know you've said it before, how landscape architecture is a, a skill set that can really make that change. Um, mm. And I know we've talked about that on a lot of occasions. 
so so yes and i think on on the back of that you mentioned about the the discussion in around designed ecology and and i um recently caught up with uh, another friend actually on holiday in wales and 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 they were talking about this idea of rewilding and actually yeah. Yeah. Putting, putting together some stakeholder groups and actually trying to buy land, put it in trust and just mm. let it go as a way of just trying to to start the process or the this sort of idea of changing the way we use our land yeah. to, to help with this, this issue. Yeah, because, you know, I think we're both acutely aware that it has to be addressed from, you know, both ends of the problem. We, mm. we have to sort of reduce our take from the environment, you know, our impact on the environment. Um, but it also has to be any new uh, impact or any new development really, you know, well, in a very justification, I suppose, yeah. for that development has to be really, really, you know, nailed down a net positive impact in its environment that it sits in. Um, you know, reading a lot from the kind of journalist stroke environmentalist George Monbiot about um, rewilding and massive, you know, large scale habitat creation. So, you know, by um, restoring uh, peat bogs, um, restoring wetlands in particular, you know, in particular, and mangrove swamps and things like that, they're real positive carbon sinks. So they, you know, actively draw down and store carbon from the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, it's like you were saying earlier, it's, 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 it's dealing with it from both ends. So it's not just obviously we need to reduce, we need to mitigate against the big kind of pollutant industries. But at the same time, if we can capture those pollutants and process them in a natural way and, and create more carbon stores, that's yeah. going to be as equally as positive, isn't it? And, and rewilding has a real opportunity to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the 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 positive of rewilding and the the the, the major plus to the, the to that approach is that it's it's landscape it's at a landscape scale, so you get you know more bang for your bucket essentially. I mm. think. Yeah, no, definitely. I know you you uh, put me onto a, a link of of George Monbiot's where. I think it originated uh, some of the research that he did around just simply introducing some of the, are they called the keystone species? Um, so yeah. I think they introduced wolves in Yellowstone National Park in America. And that from from the, that being like the top end of the food chain worked its way all the way down to actually changing the course of the river and easing flooding in, in sort of downstream towns, which is phenomenal. But it was all about not just that the apex predator, if you like, was reducing numbers of things like deer that overgrazed the riverbanks and stuff like that. But it actually completely changed all the sort of grazing mammals, the way in which they moved, the way in which they had routine. So then mm -hmm. all, the, all the rivers were becoming more forested, which was attracting more biodiversity, more species. But actually, yeah. the rivers, then eventually it came down to the rivers were actually eroding much less because of that kind of vegetated infrastructure that was naturally being allowed to grow there. Um, yeah, change yeah. The, the river, which you know is it crazy? You just put one species back in that whole link, and suddenly nature then almost corrects itself, and that's a it's, link we took out. Yeah, I mean it, it's it seems simple and very you know common sense that that would happen. There's a whole network of well, the the, the organisation Rewilding Britain has 
uh, yeah, ten ten projects on its on its list here, but you know they are massive, massive landscape scale. You know, I mean the the key the, the one down the road from me, um, Nep Nep um, Castle, is um, or the Nep Estate is three and a half thousand acres of um, of estate that was you know formerly um, farmland and and uh, just left to kind of really you know uh, find its own way some restoration of the watercourse and things like that but the 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 surveys that they've done like the 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 you know habitat surveys and the the wildlife surveys that they've done have so you know show a massive increase in in populations of these real you know endangered and critically endangered species like cranes that are nesting there now you know they're they're the first breeding pair in in britain for you know so you know loads of years <laughs> if that makes sense. So lots of years lots of years you know um it's just amazing they've got you know purple emperors purple emperor butterflies you know just clouds of them and it you know have you ever seen a purple emperor no, I don't think I have to be honest. Oh, I just just amazing. Absolutely yeah. amazing. And that's that's all based around changing the land use from high intensity agricultural arable farming down to and livestock farming down to actually a more natural kind of rewilding approach and suddenly they've seen a complete transformation of the biology of that landscape and had a huge net gain in terms of biodiversity carbon capture and yeah introducing new species that have just naturally come back because of the 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 nature's kind of created the environment back to what it was when they used to flourish there and on the on the other side of that which i think is probably one of the crux in the whole kind of idea of rewilding is actually it's financially and economically also a sound structure at nep isn't it They, they they make money from the farm yeah yeah the rural economy is like key to the success of those types of projects so at nep in particular they they run things um what they call safaris literally you know in a little jeep or on foot and they are so sought after these these events that they they sell out you know i went uh, you know myself and my wife went on a on a bee safari with um a guy called Dave Gawson, who's um, into bumblebees, basically. <laughs> he um, and he's written, you know, extensively about bumblebees and the loss of our um, 20 odd species of bumblebees. And, you know, I had to book in January for, for the event that was in July. And, you know, just that little fact is just it's just made there's such a market for people nowadays to, to you know, go out and experience nature firsthand and and be you know surrounded in it and and really you know um you know you, you go out there and take only photographs you know leave leave footprints if you must mm-hmm. that, that kind of approach to things it shows right. a, a thirst of wanting knowledge doesn't it i think as well people want to know how to change and i think places like nep are the forerunners is actually how you can manage land differently um, absolutely and I think it also highlights that this kind of battle between, you know, ecology by design, or as we've called this podcast, rewilding by design, is that it's still managed in a, in a way, but it's managed yeah. in a much better way. So 
you couldn't just you know say okay we're gonna 50 percent of britain we're just gonna fence off and let nature do what it's going to do i think there has always has to be an element of management of some type to ensure that it is i guess economically viable but also to ensure that um the ecology works in the right way i suppose yeah you know it's not completely left to its own devices you know, they, yeah they do have life they still have livestock there but it's just not intensively reared and they yeah. do have to obviously manage their numbers and things like that um so there's there's always it's just you know so much more light touch and just kind of as i say yeah stewardship if a tree does fall over uh, you kind of make it safe i suppose but then you know you don't have to chop it up into bits and and um, compost it. You just let it let it decompose naturally, and all of those you know wood boring insects you know, multiply and 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 all of that jazz. Definitely, that's really interesting. Actually, I was watching a program last night, and it said that um, a successful woodland should have at least thirty percent deadwood in it. Which you kind of, when you think of a managed woodland, you don't think of it as as you know thirty percent of the success of that ecology is through. The deadwood effectively mm. it's quite interesting mm. absolutely um but another mm. similar kind of estate if you like is a place called old lands in monmouth in wales right uh, to stay there it's um they do sort of a com- hospitality accommodation but it's set in the most beautiful um farm uh as part of the estate and they're they're looking at similarly changing the way that it's managed they manage the land in association mm. with the welsh wildlife trust it's really interesting because there they're going to the sort of the the nth degree of actually only harvesting seeds of wildflowers and plants that they find on the estate so they won't import any seeds or any right okay that's interesting yeah and i think that's quite a nice way of looking at it so you're not trying to force nature back in you're actually working with what's there and and slowly developing the the species which is a really interesting kind of way of looking at it and then yeah because you you, because it's quite easy to sort of specify you know uk provenance um uh, wildflower mixes say for instance yes on a project but you know that could be anything from you know john o'groats to land's end it could you know but to have a real local distinctiveness in your um in your wildflower mix that that's really powerful i think yeah, absolutely. And and they're still using livestock to manage the land. You know, they still need grazing yeah. animals because ultimately, as research suggests, you, you still need to manage high quality wildflower meadows, for example. They yeah. need an element of, 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 you know, maintenance cutting back once a year or, or being grazed at certain times of the year. So, yeah. They're, they're doing it in instead of rotating based on how much food's available or how well a crop will grow they're rotating based on actually positive management of the land which i think is the key oh right okay yeah um and and yeah it's a fantastic place uh, they do all sorts of different nature walks and um and things like that so i think in the probably a smaller version of net but again a, a larger state looking for revenue through positive environmental change so mm. Um, so I guess there's the, you know these big ideas around rewilding there's really good examples as you mentioned rewilding Britain um, and NEP how can we or how can landscape architects take some of the principles of of rewilding and and insert that into our projects on a day-to-day 
that's that's all that's always the it's a it's a hard sell isn't it it's a hard sell to your client saying oh yeah we're just going to leave that bit um a lot of it is about education i mm-hmm. think there's definite cost benefits to um not only in terms of you know a reduction in um ongoing ongoing management yeah we said about you know it's it's more about stewardship it's not about an intensive management regime mm. And yeah, there's definitely definitely a case. You know, say is say you're working on a large scale development as part of the pack that new residents get. You know, it could be there could be an element that within that, you know, this is about obviously um, engaging with your client and really getting them on board, but um, trying to influence or you know to suggest the the new residents within that development. Uh, and let's not let's not forget, you know residential gardens are a massive massive um portion of you know the urban realm you know like a third of um a third of london you know is is basically back gardens which is which yeah. is uh, yeah an amazing thing to think about you know all of those individual elements add up to such a such a large proportion of it's, um of the urban environment definitely it's like you say it's 30 percent of all urban areas in the uk is residential back gardens basically mm. which i think i read a figure that that equates to something like five hundred and thirty thousand hectares <laughs> of, of opportunity yeah to, to actually and even if you said well 10 percent of each of one of those if you had an element of rewilding in it you know the difference that would make would be insane yeah and it's just the it's just well even if they they left you know a square meter of their garden it's just a just a colonized by weeds or you know or anything just that that builds up to such a massive massive um positive impact yeah no it does and i think you're right that that's sort of the education side of it but i think it has to i think we almost need to think bigger and think actually well it Mm. needs to come from policy it needs to come from government people need to be rewarded for acting in a in in a way that is beneficial to the environment And I think, you know, there's there's some schemes out there like Brianne for buildings and things like that. And there is elements of landscape within that. But I think there's real scope to say on any development, whether, you know, as a practice, we work on residential developments, we work on one off projects as well. Um, And I think if there was a, a measure of the biodiversity right from planning stage, you know, if there was an incentive and a financial benefit, whether that's tax relief or what it might be on a project, Yeah. you engage actively in increasing and bettering the ecology of that that site because i think sadly as a as a race we have to be incentivized and the scare of the world is literally coming to an end and yeah. we're, we're not, not phased by that literally until the seas flood every bit of landmass, the lightning bolts come down we'll still be sitting there pumping our diesel engines out thinking why is this happening um, i think unless we have a financial um incentive i think it's going to be hard to get the developers and the house builders to really change the approach on on biodiversity i 100 percent agree i think that big big existential crises like climate breakdown and biodiversity loss are completely lost on guys who just want to make a buck or you know guys who you know, let's let's not beat around the bush. We all need to pay bills. <laughs> Sadly, no. you know that's 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 what it is. 
and I think the 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 stick in this case is very much more powerful than the carrot. Mm. It's just we're just so dislocated from those big crises, and they they kind of astonishingly quick in some respects, but astonishingly slow. It's like the kind of um, slow build up of you know pressure, just having a real short sharp shock to the system as it stands would I think would would really create a lot of change in 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 a very short space of time. Yeah, definitely. And it's like if any industry, I think it was was it back in 2008 when the the last kind of recession was mm. and the housing industry really ground to a halt and in order yeah. to try and spark it up again there was financial incentives there was things like you know vat relief on new builds and stuff like that to try and get the wheels turning on the construction mm. industry again. And it's almost like we, you know, our our environment, our ecology, the importance of our climate almost needs to be seen as an industry that needs to be restarted again. We need to get yeah. incentives in place to, to, to help it, to fix it, basically. Yeah. And in other industries like agriculture, for example, there is things on the horizon, like there's some post-Brexit policy um, that's been proposed. That's the B word. I know. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> Edit, erase. Um, but that actually is going to incentivize farmers because they currently get um, subsidies based on just having a certain amount of land they get paid to have agricultural ready land no matter what they do with that land and the new kind of policies are looking at actually they should measure what's happening on that land in terms of its biodiversity and actually subsidies i.e the financial relief farmers get should be based on the benefit their land is adding to the environment which seems like a bit of a silly idea in that's how simple it is and how much change that could evoke and it's almost like we need that in the building industry as well so that you know if you build your house if you set aside a certain amount or a a developer sets aside a certain percentage towards biodiversity towards real measurable ecology on a site and then that's measured over a period of say five and ten years and then they get tax relief based on the progress of that kind of ecology I think you'd find big sums of money being budgeted for that that element yeah yeah you'd hope so I think this also leads into the kind of emerging conversation about how you know the land how land in this country is kind of owned and governed and used I think it has been kind of the 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 point has been forced by by these the big political drama that we're that we're sitting in at the moment and it's really questioning is that actually right you know people just sitting on land kind of dare I say it forcing up um, land values just because um, because of its rarity and scarcity Mm. um, you're completely right because even there's there's a a thing isn't there that if you have a second home and it's empty for like I don't know six months I'm not 100% sure on that but you can you can force them or that the local authority can force them to sell it can't they i think there's something like that something along those lines yeah if there's derelict land why should there not be after a certain amount of time and no land use why shouldn't that be tr- put put in trust and, yeah. and kind of legislated so that it can become a sort of ecological benefit become a, a carbon capture and that's you know maybe there's a centralized charity that that governs that mm-hmm. because... yeah it, i mean that and that's for the public benefit isn't it mm. really longer termism is is something that's kind of alien to to a lot of kind of political models i guess um mm. 
thinking beyond the five-year term is is quite a stretch for some people i would i would suggest maybe at this point yeah. in time no that's but, true but i think yeah, there's just and you've probably sent it on this podcast i think you know particularly i know we talk a lot about it there's just an element of frustration in the air for people yeah. that understand and that read and and want to learn more about the impact on our environment that we're having and what needs to happen we're starting to get frustrated now because the change isn't coming and it's not coming fast enough like you say because people are still waking up to the idea and it's kind of we're quite fortunate that we're in an industry where we can create change even on a, on a small scale you know as mm-hmm. landscape architects we're responsible i mean i don't know how many trees and plants i plant i specify annually but they're in their thousands i mean how many industries can you say that you, you plant or responsible for for designing in thousands of trees and plants planted every year which is mm-hmm. you know, one of the real benefits of our our, our sort of roles if you like yeah and uh, much to our strengths definitely uh, you know we're well yeah it'd be a very interesting exercise to go through and and calculate and quantify that 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 amount of tree planting it would be very interesting to see our our sort of net impact on kind of carbon um carbon emissions etc definitely and i think that comes down to almost the measure of it and and as a even as a practice, we try and do everything we can to, to limit our sort of carbon footprint almost. And I think there should be much bigger incentives for not only big corporate companies that, that take advantage of some of the incentives, you know, in a good way, because that's why they're there. But also your small companies, your everyday, you know, whether it's a sole trader, if they're proving a negative carbon footprint or a reduced one, there should be some sort of financial benefit to that to help incentivize others almost. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? It's kind of coming up with ideas that really create that change that we're looking for. And you mentioned a huge one, which is education. And, and within you know, your role in the, in the RHS, that's you know, one of their fundamental driving principles, isn't it? The, the educational side. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's one of the key, key components of, of the RHS, you know, their charitable kind of outcomes, I guess. Yeah. Or, uh, you know the, the the thing they're kind of judged on the key one for me is the rhs green planet um award uh, or campaign should i say and that's about educating secondary school age um students to kind of look at their spaces uh, either in their school grounds or in their kind of local you know even in their local environment to kind of see how they can um, improve that through a course of, I think it's something like three months or something along those lines. Um, okay. But but being mentored by a design professional, well, an industry p- professional, you know, some some groups have been mentored by, um, you know, horticulturalists, things like that. And I think that that's such a powerful thing just to just to get um, students at that age age range or that age bracket just to kind of reassess their their environment and how but how easily they could you know positively or create positive change within that within their environment and it helps them just to reframe their their um experience of space but also their their experience of you know kind of hierarchy 
you know we have to be you know as professionals we have to you know work through the planning system and things like that so it helps them kind of frame it not only in kind of that kind of artistic manner you know oh, you know this could well, the spatial arrangement kind of um ideas you know that could that that would work better over there or you know if we had a um you know a tree there that'd be that would that'd be nice in the summer because you'd have shade underneath it but also kind of working it through logically through a process i think it's such a powerful tool and there are lots of landscape professionals um sign up to it and you know go through the whole the whole process i think it's great no absolutely no it really is i know you've talked you mentioned that a few times how do we keep you know banging the drum and, and trying to get a result from that because i'm aware of you know time on the on the podcast and i guess how how can we really push this agenda um i like the phrase um think global act local I really like that. I think as professionals, we should be more engaged with our local communities uh, and really take our local authorities to task on a lot of things. We should be, we, we as professionals in our sort of personal lives should should be the instigators for change. Absolutely, I believe that. Yeah, I think I think you're right. We just, I think it's more... What can everyone do? I think we need to be more engaged now. I think we need to be asking more questions and that's, you know, we need to engage in the political process and actually make decisions based on our environmental future. I think, you know, for us as an industry, we've got the Landscape Institute as our, you know, the head of our industry. We should be actually questioning them and saying what's yes. done and what can your members do to facilitate more change because they've got the ear of, you know, local government. Therefore, we should be using them as a tool. As an industry, we should be using the Landscape Institute as a tool and not just feel that we're a small part of something a lot bigger, but we should be asking the questions. Yeah, it's the, well, it's the whole kind of apathy thing creeping in, isn't it? Like, oh, it's kind of not my my problem. Well, it, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it kind of is <laughs> the profession, the landscape profession's um uh, problem absolutely it is, it is yeah and even even all the way down to you know i know uh, as an industry it's, it's 90 years old now the um, landscape institute and i know i've been seeing a lot of um awards uh, a lot of information about the award ceremony coming up 2019 awards mm -hmm. and again as the top of the industry those awards should be driven towards projects which really create change through biodiversity through ecological design as well as all the other categories but there should i feel like every project should have a a thread that includes those those core principles of of ecology and and you know have a positive impact on the environment um, yes. just to really start setting the standard really definitely definitely but yeah i guess yeah I almost feel like I, I should apologize because it feels like a bit of a ranty podcast but I think it's just <laughs> it's it's all on the back of that that report that came out the UN report in May and it was just you know we knew it was bad but really that bad like one in four species are at risk of extinction that's big isn't it that's huge 75% of terrestrial environment is severely altered by human actions to date that's just bonkers yeah, we're losing species. Didn't even know existed. 
before yeah. or, 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 or will never know have existed because they've gone into extinct before exactly. you know you even know it yeah and that goes back to talking about George Monbiot where he sort of highlights the idea of sort of trophic cascades where you know from the top predator all the way down to the smallest you know almost microbe if you like that that's a process and they're all interlinked how many species do you take out of that trophic cascade before suddenly that food chain disappears altogether Uh, and how many food chains disappear before suddenly we have a huge environmental crisis well I guess the answer is now yeah Uh, I think if that if that isn't a wake-up call then you know I don't know what (laughs) what what could be and what can't you know what else needs to to be known or shared to Mm. kind of really put the um the jeepers up us and enact this change that we all desperately need Mm. maybe um maybe all landscape architects should create their own political party maybe maybe that's the the way forward (laughs) (laughs) hold up don't know about that hold on yeah scratch that (laughs) um but yes no absolutely i think we we keep saying it don't we? we we've got a real opportunity to to create positive change and we're, we're quite fortunate that we are, I guess, one of few industries that can can really do that on a on a visual or measurable scale. Mm. So we need to just keep. Keep asking the questions and demanding answers, I suppose, asking more from our clients, asking more from our governing body. Indeed, indeed, you do. A lot of the time it does feel a little bit like doom and gloom. No, you're right. I think it's it's very easy to be caught up in the um, idea that it's all going wrong so there's nothing I as an individual can do about it because actually there's a huge amount of opportunity and hope that is out there to to make change and huge amounts of positive projects that are doing Mm. just that and then you know we're not talking they're happening now they've been happening for decades now these positive projects it's just more about now learning from those and replicating them a lot faster than we are at the moment Um, And, and changing people's perception because you know I'm a firm believer that you know 95% maybe of the population want a healthy climate want a healthy planet and therefore we we can do it we just need the tools and the education and the incentive um, and that's what you know we need to try and inspire I suppose um, I think one thing we we probably haven't mentioned in the podcast, which is quite relevant, is the idea of you know ecological design. And mm. as landscape architects, we're not ecologists, and we yeah. need ecologists. We need their, you know, their their information, their science to inform our design. And I think that's where the fundamental change of this idea of ecology by design it's not to say that ecology should be designed but it's to say that design should be informed by positive ecology yeah Uh, and i think we're learning this more and more where we need to rely on other disciplines to inform our design because we can't we can't do it all we don't you know we didn't do a degree and a master's in ecology or conservation or you know things like that we have to rely on our other consultants to you know, as as we all know, to get the better outcome on any project. Yeah, there are many times where I wish I could, uh, you know, take three years out and do a degree in ecology now. Definitely. Um, yeah. And and also a borough culture as well. And I think, 
you know we are we have to also know the limits of our knowledge and our discipline and actually utilize all the other disciplines within i guess the collective industry to um to create that that outcome and if that means badgering a client to spend a little bit more on fees to get an ecologist yeah. on board that's something that needs to be done or an arboriculturalist or whatever disciplines needed i think that's also kind of that sparking the seed of change as well mm. great well it's been good to speak to you about this ben i feel like it's been something i've needed to get off my chest for a while <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah you, you being my um what's the word sounding board sounding board of of um yes issues <laughs> well i mean there's loads of information out there some of it kind of scary reading some of it kind of really inspiring and kind of invigorating research that kind of really should set the fire in your belly alight um just to go out there and and really create you know, just that little bit of change, you know, the whole kind of nudge theory, a little bit of change, a little bit of change, and they add up and they add up. Um, so I think, you know, I think we should all be more more clued up on everything. Yes. You know, landscape architects, by their very nature, are generalists, which is a good thing, absolutely a good thing. But I think we need to really, in the eye of this storm now, to kind of upskill ourselves in a lot of things. No, definitely. And I think, like you say, in terms of resources, if if there's sort of one or two takeaways from this podcast, I think have a look at the Rewilding Britain website because it's a real fountain of, of information and also a great source, George Monbiot, his website. There's a lot of YouTube uh, films that he's done, kind of documentary films. And I think yeah. it's a real kind of, I found it quite, you know, inspirational driver for yeah. me. Um, and a lot of it, really good information. Read his book, Feral, as well. That's yes. a good one. Yeah. Couldn't put that down. It's just like a proper page turner, that one. And just uh, astonishing, really, <laughs> to think about it. No. Um, as, the, as all the cool kids, I guess, are saying, you know, we'll put some links and bits and bobs in our show notes. Yes, of course. And also, if any of the listeners have got any projects that they're working on, that you know would be happy to share or put on the website that really show you know true change in in this kind of area would be happy to have that discussion absolutely it's a two-way street for sure (laughs) (laughs) um thanks for thanks for your ears you super people (laughs) (laughs) but i hope you enjoyed that chat um any comments let us know at dwg pod on the twitters and the instas until the next episode um go well cheers bye